Well, how many would rather be here tonight than in the hospital, both legs in traction? Okay, all right, good. Glad to hear that. I'm glad to be here tonight, too. I like being in church. I don't know about you. I know a lot of people in our world think it's weird to go to church as much as some of us do, but I was just kind of retracing it. In the last 30 days, this is the 18th night I've been in a church service. And uh, I think it just reminded me of uh, what the Bible says. We need so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, again, I'm not trying to get overly spiritually about, uh, spiritual about that. I understand we need to go home and that, that kind of thing. But I, I do believe that being in church is good for us. And I'm thankful that your church is doing something that many churches have stopped doing a while ago, and that's having some extra meetings to try and emphasize uh, our spiritual health. And so I commend you for making it a priority. I know many of you have been here every single service, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, now again Tuesday night. It's hard to believe we just have one more night together and that's it. But I hope the Lord has spoken to your heart and helped you. And again, I commend you and am grateful that you're here with us tonight. I wish we had a little bit of a warmer day, to be honest with you. I'm from South Carolina, and so today was kind of uh, brutal. It reminded me of why I don't live in Ohio anymore. I'm still bitter at my dad, you know. Uh, I was, how, how many of you grew up and you were the, the snow blower? Yeah, that was me. I was the garage door opener, you know. When I moved out of the house, dad bought a snow blower. That was wrong. That was absolutely wrong. And so it was a cold day today, but I understand it's going to warm up a little bit later. And I uh, love you too, Brother Wally. I love this church, love this ministry. And uh, thank you for loving me uh, over all of these years. And, you know, he, he was telling, he's given me too much credit, 97 pounds. I don't, I don't know if you remember this, I, I wrestled in high school, and in my freshman year at Fairfield Freshman Invitational, I went to Northwest High School, I wet, wrestled in Fairfield Freshman Invitational, I weighed in, I was in the 92-pound weight class, I weighed in at 78 pounds in that tournament, so uh, you give me too many credits. Some of you are like, man, I weighed that in the first grade, I know, I know. What's funny is, being about 80 pounds as a freshman, it was probably about 25% of my body weight was my tongue, it really was, and so... Um, uh, but I, I love to tell that story at teen camps and stuff. I love to see the looks on the girls' face. Ooh, you know, like, it's pretty funny. But anyway, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 in your Bible. And uh, I want to preach to you tonight, just trying to challenge you a little bit. Last night we tried to encourage you. Tonight I want to challenge you. And it's good to be challenged and stretched a little bit. And I want to preach to you a message tonight from good to great. Do you want to be great in your, in your spiritual life? And the Bible's going to tell us how to be great. And I want you to see the text. Mark chapter 10, we're going to read verse 32 down to verse 45. Would you stand with me, please? I love the Bible. I love standing in respect from it. You say, why do you stand when you read the Bible? Well, Nehemiah chapter 8, that's what they did out of respect and honor and appreciation, love for the Bible. They would do that. I don't think it's wrong if you don't. I just like to do that. And let's read the text together. Mark chapter 10, verse 32, it says, And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. So the they here is referring to the disciples. It says, and Jesus went before them. And I kind of, you know, he was the leader, and I like that. I've, I've been on uh, some military posts. You ever been, I had a friend who was a full bird colonel on a military post. And buddy, uh, I remember one time I was walking with him, I got a little ahead of him, and, it, and his, his aide pulled me, he said, never walk in front of the colonel. Oh, yes, sir. I see these guys, Jesus is walking. You never walk in front of Jesus, I guess. And they're following him. And I like this. And he says here, verse 32, they were going on the way and they went before, Jesus went before him. And I love this. And they were amazed. I bet it was amazing. I'm telling you, I would give you every penny I have to spend 24 hours with physical Jesus. Wouldn't that have been, I mean, I would have, amazing. You, the Bible says you couldn't even write enough books 
to contain all the stuff that happened. I can't imagine what happened in 24 hours. Sure, they were amazed. And as they followed, they were also afraid. Boy, they knew they were around somebody that was way different than they were. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered into the tr- under the chief priests and other scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him and shall scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. You get the idea here that they didn't really pay much attention to what he just said because in the next verse, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him saying, Master, we would, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. So basically they're saying, hey, listen, I want you to promise me something. Promise me you'll do this for me. Promise me you do this. You ever had your wife do that? Now look, promise me you'll do this. I always say, no, woman, you tell me what it is you want first, all right? I'm not promising anything until I know what you're up to. They come to Jesus and say, you promise us you'll do this. He says, well, what do you want? Verse 36, he said unto them, what would ye that I should do for you? And they said unto him, grant unto us that we may sit one on the right hand and the other on the left hand in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, ye know not what you ask. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, we can. How many of you get the idea there that they were talking about two different things? Yeah, we'll talk about that. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized, with all shall you be baptized. But to, spit on my, but to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not in mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are counted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. Remember, we're in this world, but not of this world. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister or be your servant. And whosoever you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless the text and help us to learn from your word. And I truly pray that you'd help us to apply it to our lives individually. And I pray that you'd make this a great church because it's made up of great people. And our model of greatness would be found in the word of God taught by the master. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing so long. You may be seated. Appreciate that. Back in 2001, Jim Collins wrote a best-selling management book, and I would imagine there's some people in this room that if you're in management or leadership have read that. Uh, Many, many pastors I know got their hands on this book and read it. It was entitled, and that's the title of my message tonight, From Good to Great. And what Jim Collins did in this particular book, and I've read it a couple of times, it's a helpful book, he uh, took 11 companies and showcased them and studied them to find out what made them great companies, how they went from ordinary companies to to great companies. And so it's like, what companies are you talking about? Uh, Well, like Walgreens. Walgreens was one in the book, and uh, we all know of Walgreens. I imagine everybody in this room has been in a Walgreens and spent some money there. And Walgreens is like Subway. There's one on every corner in America, you know. And so they, they profiled that, that particular company, Gillette, Pitney Bowes. They, they just, what, what made these companies go from good to great companies? Now, stay with me. I, I know this isn't a business module, module tonight, but I, I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. Uh, 
basically what he said at the start of the book, he said, first of all, you, you, you got to get the right people on the bus, and then you got to get the right people in the right seats. And he talked about the bus driver. The bus driver is important, the leader. And he said, if you want to have a great company, you have to have what he called a level five leader. Now, I'm not going to bore you and go through all the stages of the levels of leadership, but he said, you got to have a level five leader. Now, let me start and talk to you about the level four leader before we get to that level five leader. The level four leader, this is what he said. He said, is an effective leader who catalyzes commitment to and vigorous pursuit of a clear and compelling vision, stimulating higher performance standards. Now, some of you are sitting here going, eh, I thought this was preaching. I'm going to get to that. Stay with me. He said, well, I didn't get that definition. Well, basically, here's what he's saying. We expect a leader to be a visionary. That's a level four leader, he said. Somebody that can see things before they happen, feel things that other people don't feel, do things that other people can't do. I mean, they've got a plan. They're visionary. They've got it all figured out. He basically said in that definition, it's somebody who has a strong personality. Isn't that what we expect out of leaders? We think that leaders are the people that walk in a room and they just take over the room because they're a strong personality. Not necessarily, but that's what we sometimes envision. Uh, it's somebody who's determined. It's what we would oftentimes call a power leader. He said, that's actually a level four leader. That's what he said. If you want to be a great company, he said, you don't need to be a four, level four leader. You need to have a level five leader. Here's what he said. This is a quote from the book. We were surprised, shocked, really, to discover the type of leadership required for turning a good company into a great one. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities who make headlines and become celebrities, the good to great leaders, don't miss this, this is important, are a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. Now, you, you sit here saying, well, preacher, you're losing me. Okay, okay, here, here's the point I'm trying to make. Jim Collins devoted 15,000 hours of research. He studied 6,000 articles. He generated 2,000 pages of inter interview transcripts of CEOs, and he created 384 million bytes of computer data to come up to, with a conclusion that Jesus gave in seven Bible verses 2,000 years ago. That's the point I'm trying to make. What we see in verses 32 through 34 is basically the third announcement in this gospel record of Jesus' ultimate end of ministry. Jesus was very transparent with people, didn't he? He didn't ever promise them anything that he would not deliver, and he never, he never made Christianity or following him out to be anything that it was. Many times he said to people, hey, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. And so there were seasons and times in his ministry where he gathered his followers together and he said, listen, fellas, this is what's going to happen. Before too long, they're going to deliver me and arrest me, and they're going to kill me, but I'll rise again. You know, the disciples didn't always like that message. There was one time Peter, he's my favorite character in the Bible outside of Jesus. Peter pulled him aside and said, Master, you, you got to stop all this talk about dying and being crucified and all that stuff. He said, this isn't good for your ministry. I mean, if you really want to grow a church, people don't want to hear stuff like that. They don't want to be embarrassed by somebody that's killed and put on a cross. You, you're going to have to market yourself better than that. Not so, Lord. And Jesus said, Let's get behind me, man. And Jesus was constantly telling them and trying to teach them exactly what the script was. Now, what's different about this particular account is a couple of times previously, he told them what would happen, but now he is telling them where it's going to happen. He says, it's going to happen in Jerusalem, and he tells them who is going to do this to him. He talks about the chief priests and the scribes. He hadn't done that before, and now he's starting to give them more details about what's going to happen. And again, same story as before. The disciples didn't want to hear this. 
This was not what they envisioned of their ministry. This is not what they left their, their homes and their houses and their families and their businesses and their professions for. They had something different on their mind. They had crowns on their mind, not crosses. Now, I don't want to be too hard on the disciples. Let's not be too hard on them. I think sometimes we are too hard on the disciples. You're like, what a bunch of boneheads, and why didn't they get it? But, but hold on, we're, 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 let's be honest. We're boneheads sometimes. We're hard to teach too. And so let's not be too hard on them. But, but here you almost read this with disdain. Here's Jesus, and he's talking to him, and he says, he says listen, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be spit upon. I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to be mocked, and I'm going to be crucified. He's talking about some pretty bad details here. And the next thing you know, the next paragraph in the, in the text, they're saying, hey, Jesus, we want you to do a favor for us. Exalt us. Make us great. Give us a good seat of position. And you almost want to say, come on, guys. Man, this guy's struggling here. He's telling you the difficult things that's going to happen to him in his life, and all you care about is your own personal promotion. You kind of want to be hard on him. But I want to back up just a second here tonight and, and kind of give him some credit where credit's due. And the credit I want to give them is this, is aren't you glad that these guys wanted to aspire to some form of greatness? I think that's something to applaud a little bit because, I mean, think about it. I would imagine tonight, I, I don't know everybody's profession in here, but I imagine that maybe there's some educators in here. Uh, I would imagine if you were in education, you know that there have been some students that sat in your class and they had a certain measure of educational prowess. They, they had a mind for academia and they could have been better students than they were, but they had no motivation to be great. And that's very frustrating when you're an educator and you're trying to teach these kids and you know that they have the middle capacity. They just don't have the drive or the ambition or the willingness to be great at something. That's frustrating. I coached varsity basketball for five years when I was an assistant pastor. I coached varsity basketball for five years. And anybody who's done any measure of coaching, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, whatever it is, I guarantee you've been frustrated because you've looked at some kid who had great athletic ability but had no drive or ambition to be coached, no drive or ambition to, to do the extra things that needed to, to do to be great. They were, just, they were just kind of content with being good. You know what I'm saying? Listen, I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for nearly 18 years. I was a youth director for five years. Brother Wally was a, pa a youth pastor for over 20 years. He's been a pastor now for 15, 16, 17 years now. I guarantee you he could look back in his ministry and say, you know what? There were some people that I looked at and they had great spiritual aptitude. I mean, they, they could have done, they had so much talent and ability that could have been used in the local church for the glory of Jesus Christ. And they could have really been something, but they had no drive. They, they had no ambition to be great spiritually, and so they were just kind of lukewarm. They were mediocre. They were good, but they were not great. And I look at these disciples, and I say, give them some credit, because they wanted to be something. They wanted to be great, and that, to me, that motivates me tonight, because it, it just puts something in my breast, like, like, I know I can't be certain people, and I'm not trying to be, but you know what? I want to be great in what God's called me to do. I want to do as great of a job, not just a good job. I want to do a great job in what God has given me, and, I, and that's what a revival meeting is. I'm preaching to a Tuesday night crowd. I know where I'm at, and I know who I'm talking to. I would hope there's something burning in some teenager tonight that says, you know what? I, I want to be a a great spiritual uh, person in my youth department and in my school. I hope there's some parents and families in here saying, you know what? I don't want to just be some run-of-the-mill Christian home. I want, I want to have some greatness in my spiritual life. I'm not talking about arrogance. I'm not talking about superiority. I'm just saying on a Tuesday night revival meeting, you're saying, I want to be something more than what I am. So I give them some credit. 
And I say to you tonight, the problem is not really wanting to be great. That was not their problem. The problem was how they defined greatness. See, sometimes we define greatness as people pay a lot of attention to me. People recognize me. People have given me promotion and position. And that's kind of what these guys thought, isn't it? Sometimes it's not only how we define what great is. Sometimes it's, it's why we want to be great. Do you burn in your, in your bosom to be great because you want to be noticed? That's the wrong motivation. If you burn in your soul to be great because you realize there's a creator above who designed you and gave you the abilities and gifts and opportunities he's given you, and you want to please him. And as those ladies sang about, you want to be faithful to him and you want to bring honor and glory to him. I believe that's what it means to glorify God. That it means to make him look good. So if you want to be great to make yourself look good, wrong motivation. You're getting greatness all wrong. If you want to be great because you want to say, hey, this is what the Lord has done in my life, then man, that's a great motivation. Now again, we may not be as open and honest about our, this desire to be great as the disciples were, but we still show that we do not grasp what it means to be a disciple of a crucified Savior who gave his life a ransom for many. Sometimes we get our attitude and our decisions all wrong. And so tonight, I want to give you two elements of greatness. Let's make sure we define it correctly tonight. I want you to see in this text two elements of greatness. Number one, greatness is willing to suffer. Greatness is willing to suffer. Now again, we pointed out when we were reading it, let's talk a little bit about it. You get the idea here that they were, when they started this conversation, and he said, hey, can you drink of the cup that I drink of? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized? And they said, we can. You get the idea immediately, they were talking about two different things. They were not on the same page, and sometimes that can be real humorous. I don't know if you like musicals or not, I don't mind a good musical, and, and the greatest one ever is Fiddler on the Roof. And if you're familiar with that, little music, with that story and that musical, in Fiddler on the Roof, the main character is a dairy farmer, and the local butcher wants to talk to him. The local bu butcher wants to marry the dairy farmer's daughter. The dairy farmer thinks the butcher wants to buy his cow. So they sit together across the table and start talking. And the butcher is talking about his daughter, and he's talking about his cow, and it gets rather humorous. It can be very interesting when you're having a conversation with somebody, and you're not talking about the same things. What, what was Jesus talking about? Well, think about it. He said, are you able to drink the cup? You ever drink from the same cup I am? Obviously, he wasn't talking about a literal cup. What was he meaning when he said that? I personally believe when you study this text, I think he was talking about inward sufferings. You say, where'd you get that from? You remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying? What was it he said? You, you guys that know the Bible, you remember it. He's bowing there and he's praying. He says, oh God, let, oh Father, let this cup pass from me. What was he talking about? Was he talking about he didn't want the nails driven in his hand? He, he, he didn't want the, the whip lashing on his back? Is that the, what he was wanting to pass? Well, I don't think any Bible student believes that. I believe he was in anguish over the idea that God the Father was going to be separated from him. From all eternity, there had been no separation between God the Father and God the Son. And this was causing him great inward strife and angst. In fact, we even sing songs about those sweat drops of blood that came rolling down on his face. Why? Because he was in inner anguish at that moment. There was something going on inside him that was suffering. And he said to them, are you able to handle the suffering that's going to come inward to somebody who wants to be great to follow me? Can you handle that? 
They said, yeah, we can. I don't think they were talking about the same thing. Why did he say, are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Does that mean those guys couldn't be baptized by immersion? Remember Jesus went down into the water, Jesus was baptized? Was he talking about the same thing? No, no, I think, I think again, I think this is what he was talking about. He was talking about outward sufferings. Isn't that what baptism is? Hey, church, didn't you rejoice on Sunday night to see those two folks get baptized? Man, that was a blessing to me. Do you understand tonight, can I just pastor, I know I'm not your pastor, but can I pastor you for just a moment? Do you understand most churches go a whole calendar year and never even see one person baptized? You on one random Sunday night in the middle of the year saw two people get baptized. And man, every time somebody gets baptized, you ought to rejoice in that. Man, I'm telling you, at least grunt for God when that happens, you know? I mean, it's just awesome because what is it? It's an outward symbol of something that happened inwardly. That's what baptism is. It's saying, this happened to me, I got saved, and I want everybody on the outside to see it. So it is an outward expression, right? Well, Jesus is saying, can you be baptized with my baptism? He's saying, you guys know that you're going to handle suffering outwardly? I mean, think about it. He, 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 he knew that, that, that he was going to experience physical anguish and pain. He said, can you handle this? And the disciples look at him and said, oh, yeah, we can do that. And clearly they were thinking about something different. Well, what do they, when they hear cup, they're thinking something different. Think about what cup means to us. I think in a lot of ways cup means celebration. Listen, is this a Baptist church? Okay, so you all eat at things. You ain't a Baptist church if you're not eating stuff together. I mean, every time you get together, whether it's a birthday party, a graduation party, a wedding party, a church potluck, a team get-together, I mean, you, you always, some, you, got, you, what, you got something to drink, you got something to eat around here, they're thinking, yeah, we can drink of that cup, uh-huh. Think about baptisms. The baptisms are exciting. At our, at our church, if somebody's going to get baptized, boy, we make a big deal about it. We try to, man, they get their friends, they get their family, everybody comes, man, this is exciting, get baptized. I mean, you have people that aren't even Baptists, that aren't even maybe Christians. Don't, I mean, I, recently I baptized a young man in our church, man, they brought neighbors and people they barely even knew. They weren't even church, they weren't even saved. They said, oh, you're getting baptized? Well, yeah, we'll come. Why? Because it's an outward celebration of something. And so they, the disciples are looking at him and going, yeah, we can do that. We can drink. Man, that's exciting. We can get back. Man, this is great. And, but Jesus knew something they didn't know. What did he know? He knew. He's talking to James and John specifically, isn't he? Who's James? James is going to be the first martyr. Who's John? John's going to be the last martyr. He's going to be the one that's stranded on an Isle of Patmos. He knew these men were going to suffer inwardly, and he was going to suffer outwardly. Now they're like, yeah, we can do it. And he's like, yep, you indeed will. But the point of the text here tonight, if you're staying with me, in verses 30 and th 33 and 34, let's read them together. He says, uh, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him unto the Gentiles. And they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit on him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. Jesus is talking about suffering. And you know what he's trying to teach them here? As he's predicting it and he's prophesying it, he's teaching them and saying to them, these sufferings in my life, they were not accidental. This was part of God's providential plan for me. That's what he's saying. And furthermore, what he also says in this text is he's saying, not only is this purposeful in my life, I accept it willingly. I'm glad to do it. Now, now, again, granted, Jesus' suffering was unlike any other suffering that anyone else has ever experienced, 
But what Jesus is trying to teach us here is that suffering is a reality for any true disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you some clarifiers tonight. When we speak about suffering, we are talking about suffering because of our faith, because of our Christianity. We are not talking about our suffering because we're obnoxious. You know, some people are jerks to everybody, and then they wonder why nobody likes them. Some people, the only thing they ever talk about is themselves, and then they wonder why people don't want to talk to them. Well, just I just suffer for the Lord. No, that's not suffering for the Lord. What I'm talking about tonight is there's some, there's, if you truly follow Jesus Christ, let me talk to our students. If you truly talk to, uh, follow Jesus Christ with your life, somebody somewhere is not going to like you simply because of your faith. That's what we're talking about. If you truly follow Jesus Christ, let me talk to their parents. Somebody in the office is going to dislike you because you're a Christian. Somebody is going to be mad because maybe you won't wear a pride t-shirt or you won't go along to get along with some of the cultural battles of our day today. And they're going to dislike you simply because you claim to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about. So I want to make that very, very clear. I also want to say this. Let's be clear about this. We are not asked to pay the price that other people are paid, have paid. We are asked to pay the price that he asked us to pay. And I'm thankful for that because sometimes I read about Paul and I think, man, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a loser. I mean, this guy, he was imprisoned and he was beaten and he was given death threats and he experienced shipwrecks and all kinds of things. And I think, man, I'm a loser. But the truth of the matter is, is I'm not called to the suffering of Paul. I'm called to the suffering of Michael. And I want to be very clear about that. He said, why are you saying all of this? Because stay with me tonight. I hope I'm helping you tonight. The message of Christianity today, by and large, is really not about suffering, is it? It's about being successful. It's about being comfortable. It's about experiencing the blessings of God. And what has happened in modern-day Christianity is that suffering has become a problem to be avoided and a problem to be solved. And I just have a sneaky suspicion it's because that most Christians are viewing things from the wrong angle, and that's what was going on with these men. See, I want you to think about it tonight. Think of what the cross symbolized and represented to the disciples. See, when we look at the cross, we see something entirely different. We look at it at a different angle. So think about it. The cross, they would have looked at it, and they would have seen a, something that represented defeat. Now, most churches, like my church, has some kind of cross somewhere as a decoration. And let's, let's use this cross that's in the background here for just a moment. We understand that Christ was crucified in the middle, two, two thieves and criminals on his side, and that's what you have represented here. I want everybody to take a good long look at that cross up there. Do you see anybody on it? Aren't you thankful for that? We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he's living no matter what people say. How do you know he lives? He lives, he lives, he lives within my heart, and I'm thankful for that. But notice that empty cross. But we know when we see that, do we see defeat when we look up there? I don't see defeat. That's a symbol of victory right there. But to those disciples, that's not what they would have seen. They would have seen defeat, wouldn't they? Losers die on that cross. Criminals die on that cross. People that are crushed under the hand of the Roman Empire died on a cross like that. They were looking at it from the wrong angle. But see, we look at it at the angle on the other side of an empty tomb. And so when we see that, that, that we don't see defeat. Hey, I'll tell you, you sang it tonight, didn't you? Victory in Jesus. That's where I won. 
Sin had me down on the mat. Sin was beating me. I was losing. I could never win against sin. But now I can say, oh, sin, where is thy, uh, victor- uh, where's thy victory? Grave, where's, graves, where's, death, where thy sting? And grave, where's thy victory? Why? Because that, that symbolizes to me winning. They saw it on the wrong side. Understand that cross represented pain and suffering. But you know, I, I, I don't see pain and suffering when I look at that. I see healing and hope. Then you go to Isaiah 53, and we know by his stripes we are healed. That, that, that's, that's where I was healed. That cross represented death to them. For us, that's where I found life. And so the whole point I'm trying to make is let's not be too hard on them. They were, they were seeing something from the wrong angle, and so because of that, they didn't want suffering. But, but now we see it on a different thing. So, so the cross to us might not be so, so disdainful as it would be to them. But hold on, you say, why are you saying all that? Well, when we fall under the hand of suffering in our life, and why, why am I being persecuted, and why am I at a disadvantage, and why is this happening to me? Could it just be that we, like them, are seeing things from the wrong side of the fence? So what are you talking about? Well, maybe we're looking at things from an earthly perspective and not a heavenly perspective. See, that's what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. He said, for our light affliction. Now, if you read his biography, would you call what he went through light? I was shipwrecked this many times. I was thrown in prison this many times. I was was stoned this many times. How many times have you been thrown rocks at? I mean, literal rocks trying to kill you. This never happened to me. And Paul said, it's light. It's nothing. I've never been in prison because of my faith. Never. I've never even been arrested. I've been made fun of a couple of times. Paul went through all this and he said, it's light. How could he say that? He says, it's but for a moment. How could he say it's just for a moment? Worketh for us far more exceeding and eternal way to glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but, they, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The point I'm trying to make is he saw things from an eternal perspective, not an earthly perspective. And I think sometimes when we look at our suffering, we think, oh, this isn't fair. And we, we, listen, greatness comes in embracing suffering because that is the path that God wants us to take. And when it happens, we say, it's light. Why? Because in this great scheme of things, this is just a vapor and it's over and it's gone. And the point is, is I think we have a lot of Christians who are not great Christians because they are not willing to suffer. They're not willing to sit the bench because they go to church on Wednesday nights. They're not willing to be looked over for a promotion because they won't go along to get along with some of the goofy stuff. They're not willing to be considered an outcast and not be invited to the party. They're not willing. And they're not great because they're not willing to suffer for their faith. Y'all with me tonight? Jesus looks at these guys and says, You want to be great? Do you really? then you're going to have to drink of the cup. You're going to have to be baptized with the same baptism. Now, the great thing is, is that they ultimately did. They just didn't recognize it at the time. All right, I got to hurry here. I want you to see, secondly, greatness is willing to serve. Don't you love those verses? Down at the end of the, of the passage in which we read, he said, uh, uh, whosoever will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. Even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a reins for many. That's a verse that should be highlighted in your Bible. It's a great passage. Now, here's what we see in this text. So far, we have observed a lot of worldliness in the disciples. 
Now, remember last night we talked about Joseph being in Egypt, but he was not an Egyptian, and we talked about worldliness? I want to just remind you what I said last night. A lot of times you hear all these preachers, and I don't watch this, and don't wear this, and don't do that, and they say, that's worldly. And it is, and that's, that's fine preaching. But I want you to see in this text, there was a lot of worldliness in this text. And you won't see anything said about what they were wearing and what they were watching and, and where they were going. It doesn't say anything about that. You say, well, what worldliness are you looking at? Let's look at it in the text. I see a lot of ambition. Did you notice that they made sure that they were in the front of the line? Look at verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. I, I, I laugh at that verse. Why? Because they were mad because they didn't think of it first. Those dogs, they were there asking Jesus for the good seats. Jeez, why, why didn't we think of that? Those dogs, they're always pushing their way to the front of the line. You know, and I can see these guys, they were constantly jockeying for position. Why? Because they had this selfish ambition. That's worldly. Listen, folks, I realize we live in a dog-eat-dog world. But it should never be that way inside the church. Inside this early church it was. Notice that they had overconfidence. That's a worldly uh, attitude. Can you, drink of the can you drink of the cup? Can you be baptized with baptism? We can. I mean, it, it, they were worldly in that area. Think about Peter. I love Peter. Well, when Jesus prophesies out of Zechariah, and he says, when, when, when the Son of Man is, is taken in, everybody's going to scatter. And Peter stands up and says, not this boy. I mean, can't you see him? Real proud of himself. I, mean, I know the scripture doesn't elaborate this, but I, I certainly think Peter was going, I don't doubt some of these guys will. I mean, you've been watching Thomas? That boy questions everything you say, Jesus. I guarantee you he's going to tuck tail and run. Matthew, I've never trusted him. I've never trusted Matthew. He's just in it for the money. He's always been a money grubber. Wouldn't never trust somebody that would turn to Rome instead of, instead of his own people. He'll, yeah, he'll turn on you on a dime. He already turned on the Jews. James and John, they're only in it for themselves. And as soon as the kitchen gets hot, they're going to get out of here. Old Pete, boy, he's going to stick around. Overconfident, wasn't he? He had the hardest fall than any of them. That's worldly thinking. Here's another thing I noticed in this text, competitiveness. You know, this, this band of 12 guys, they were competing with one another all the way to the end. You say, what do you mean? Even at the Last Supper, they're fighting over who gets to sit by Jesus. It reminds my own children. Your children fight over who gets to sit in the front seat? Your children fight over who gets the drumsticks? Do your children fight over who gets to stay up later than the other? Do your children fight over? I see these guys, who gets to sit by? I get to sit by Jesus. I mean, they're competing. In fact, I think so, so. This is just funny to me. Do you know that the Gospel of John is the only Gospel record that records that John got to the tomb first when Peter and him ran? And, and I cannot see any spiritual significance out of that at all other than the fact John just wants all of eternity to know that he ran faster than Peter. These guys were competing all the way. And Jesus sensed the need that he needed to go over some truths again. And, and, and you understand that there's a way that the world seeks to lead and a way that God wants us to lead. And he says to them, the Gentiles say this is how you're supposed to lead. People with authority say this is the way you're supposed to lead. And I'm telling you, it should not be so among you. 
One time a lady came up to me and she said, Pastor, I want to talk to you. I said, yes, ma'am, what, what, what can I do for you? She, this is an exact quote. I'll never forget it. An exact quote. This is what she said to me. She said, well, Pastor, I want to be in charge of something. I made up a rule on the spot. Anybody who asks to be in charge of something is not in charge of anything. That's a wrong attitude. You, you see, what he tries to teach his disciples is rather than leveraging authority, God's people are to be servants. And he even says this, servants of all. Amen. Do you understand effectual, effective spiritual leaders are those who demonstrate their heart for people by loving them and by serving them? Amen. I'm going to ask you a question and give you an answer, and it's not original with me, but it's so good I can't pass it up. How do you know if you're a servant? Maybe you've heard that question asked before. How do you know if you're a servant? Here's the answer that was given. It's not original with me, but it's so convicting and it's so helpful. You know you're a servant by how you respond when you're treated like one. This isn't my church, so I can say some things here that I wouldn't necessarily say in my church. I'm going I'm to quote my... my Dear friend, Brother Wally, there's something in, in, in this particular, when this happens to me, it really frosts my mug. Sometimes I'll be in my church and I'll be talking to somebody, and, and I may be talking about something serious. Like, I mean, maybe, maybe this brother is sharing with me a, a burden, a prayer request, something that's going on in his life, and we're having a, 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 an important conversation, and we're talking, and I, I'm just kind of old school. I think manners still matter. And every once in a while, while I'm talking to somebody, there'll be somebody over here, kind of where Chuck Lakes is sitting, and they'll, they'll, say, they'll say, hey, pastor. I mean, they'll call out to me. Hey, pastor, pastor, come here, come here, come here. Well, I'm talking to this man. This man's sharing things with me. We're, we're, even if we were talking about the ball game, we're, we're having, you're important to me. We're having a conversation. Hey, come here. And, and they do this to me. Come here. Well, I'm, I'm telling you, this frosts my mug. Because I, 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 there's something that rises up with me and says, do you understand that I'm an educated man? Do you understand that there's a, you know, I've attained a measure of success in my life. Do you understand that I am not your, your lap dog that you can just call? Hey, here, boy. Come in. Oh, excuse me, excuse me. Just come running over here. And I'm telling you, it really bothers me. And I have to kind of grit my teeth. And I, I, I really, it really, but, but you know, sometimes my, my spirit will be wrong. And I'll just come over like, yes, sir, what can I do for you? And I really want to punch you in the mouth. But I get convicted about stuff like that. Because how do you know when you're a servant? By how you respond when you're treated like one. Jesus says if you really want to be great, you have to learn how to serve. And I'm just going to tell you tonight as we come in for a landing, sometimes serving the Lord is it's unpleasant. Sometimes it's dirty. Sometimes it's, it's not fun, but it's what he's called us to do. I'll close with a little illustration, try and wrap this up and help you. In March of 1995, the New England Pipe Cleaning Company was working under the streets of Revere, Massachusetts, and they were cleaning out a 10-inch sewer line. I mean, to me, this sounds like a job. Maybe they should make a TV show of dirty jobs or something. Oh, wait, they already have. 
So they're down there, they're cleaning the sewer line. Now, I don't know if you've ever cleaned stuff like that. It's, it's rather unpleasant, isn't it? I have three daughters. Thankful for my daughters, wonderful girls. And all of them have long, thick hair. And every once in a while, they, they, they see they, they have uh, two bedrooms and have a Jack and Jill bathroom, you know, two doors that come in. So they all share, all three of them share the same bathroom. So every once in a while, so I think some of you know where I'm going with this, every once in a while, my wife will come and she'll say, she'll say, Michael, um, uh, the girl's tub isn't, isn't draining real well. And what that means is this is a job for a man. Not because I'm a handyman, it's just they don't want to do it. And so you know what I do. I, I go to the cabinet and I get, a, I get a Walmart bag. Aren't Walmart bags wonderful? There's, there's thousands of things you can do with a Walmart bag, you know? I go and I get a Walmart bag and, and I go out in the garage and I've got this tool. It's about this long and it's got grabby teeth on it and it's flexible and bendable and I know many of you have one and I, I go up to there and I'm not very handy, mind you, but I, I, I know how to do this. I'm a pro at this point. I go up and I, and I know some of you are going to catch me after. Well, there's this thing I saw on TV you can buy or there's this thing at Lowe's. I, I, I know, I know. But I go up and I, and don't mess with my illustration, by the way. So I, I go up and I, and I unscrew the drain on the tub and I, I take that tool and I, and I stick it down there. And when I pull it out, the, the, those teeth grab all kinds of wonderful things. I always love to see your faces. I mean, just, just thinking about it, you're like, ooh. I mean, my, I mean, it pulls out sludge and gunk and hair and gobs and gross things. And I mean, you think about it, on, on my daughter's heads, I mean, they, they fix their hair all up and they, they color it and dye it and spray it and spritz it and all that kind of stuff. And you're like, man, you look nice. That's not nice out of that drain, I'll tell you that right now. And I'll take that and I have to grab it with my bare hands and it's dripping everywhere and you throw it in that bag and you tie it. And I'll tell you, I come down there with that tool in that bag and, and they run like cockroaches when the lights turn on. They don't even want to see the bag. Ooh, you know. And it's gross. And here this New England pipe cleaning company, they're down in the, the city sewers, not, not the bathtub in your house. They are down under the streets of the city cleaning out the gunk of people's lives. The workers found many of the usual items that clogged these kind of pipes. But according to the story, and this is hard for me to almost believe, they also found 61 rings. They found vintage coins. They even found silverware in the pipes under the streets. So why are you telling me this? The bad news is, is they had to do a really disgusting job. The good news is they got to keep whatever they found. Here's the point of the story. In Christian ministry, if you're really going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to sometimes get down in the sludge and the slime and the gunk and the muck of people's lives. And sometimes it's going to stink. Sometimes it's going to be gross. But I've always found this. When you're willing to be like the Lord Jesus Christ and gird yourself with a towel and wash the disciples' feet, would you agree with me that washing somebody's feet would be gross? Unpleasant? But I'm just telling you, when I found myself trying to serve and get down and, and, and minister instead of being ministered to, 
in, those, in, in the muck, in the mire, in the moments of people's lives, I also find gems along the way. Blessings. Treasures. Jesus looks at these guys and he says, fellas, fellas, come here. Let's talk about this. Do you really, do you really want to be great? Yeah, man, we want to be great. Okay. You have to learn to suffer. You have to learn how to serve. When you learn that, then you'll attain true greatness. Let me ask you some questions tonight. Question number one is this. Do you desire to be great, or are you content to just be mediocre? Now, I'm not trying to be mean when I say this, but I know there are some people sitting in this room, and you're perfectly fine and perfectly content to be mediocre in your Christian life. And, to be fair, that's what you're going to be. But I would hope there are some people tonight that maybe that's all you need to do in this invitation. Is just get on your knees humbly before God and say, Oh Lord, I want to be more than what I am spiritually. I want to be how you define great. Please help me. Here's my second question. Are you the kind of person that just does everything you can to avoid suffering? Or are you willing to embrace it? And my third and final set of questions is this. Who are you actively serving? Because if you only serve because people will clap you, you're not serving. If you only serve because it's something you like doing, you're not serving. Listen, there's, I love being a pastor, but there's some things about it I'd rather not do. I love being a dad. There's things I'd rather not do as a dad. I, I love my wife, and I'm so glad God's given us a wonderful life together. Don't tell her. She's not here. Sometimes I don't enjoy being a husband and doing some of the things I have to do. If I only did the things that I want to do and I enjoy doing, that's not being a servant. Listen, if you only do things when it's done your way, you're not a servant. Now, you may be mopping the floor and doing servant-style work, but if you only do it when it's your way, you're not a servant. How do you react when you're treated like a servant? I think this is an important question. What have you discovered in the process of serving other people? Because I promise you there's gems along the way. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. Thanks for letting me preach to you tonight. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would meet with us, minister to us as you have over and over again. You are the greatest servant. And I thank you that you're still serving us today. You're interceding on our behalf. You're teaching us. You're, you're loving us. You're, you're aiding us. And thank you for your service to us. And I pray that your service would not be in vain. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed tonight, I don't want you to look around because I don't want to embarrass anybody. I mean, you would say, that's me, preacher. I'm tired of just being a mediocre Christian, and I want to just level up a little bit in my Christian life tonight. And the Lord's speaking to my heart about that. Would you raise your hand if that's you? God bless you. Many hands across the auditorium. Thank you. Thank you. 
There's nothing wrong with aspiring to greatness. In fact, we need more of it. I mean, you say, preacher, I don't want to suffer. I don't enjoy suffering. But I want God's grace in my life to help me be willing to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. How many feel that way tonight? Would you raise your hand? God bless you. How many else? And my final question. How many you say, preacher, I, I need a good dose of just being a humble servant in my heart. I need that tonight. Would you raise your hand if that's your testimony tonight? God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. And I am with you. I am very much with you. Let's all stand to our feet, please. As our friend begins to play on the piano. As some are already here at the altar, why don't you come and pray? Maybe you need to turn around and make an altar out of your seat. Maybe you just need to say, God, help me to be great. Not great in men's eyes, not great for my own sake, but great as Jesus says greatness is. Maybe you just need to come and pray and you realize you've been proud. You've not been serving. You serve on your own terms and in your own way and on your own time. Why don't you just humble yourself? Maybe you are going through it at school or on the ball team or in the office. And, and, and you're struggling with bitterness. Why don't you just kneel and say, God, thank you. Thank you for letting me suffer. Isn't that what the disciples did in the first century? They counted it an honor, a joy to suffer and be persecuted. Why? They had learned the secret of greatness. Not in this text they hadn't, but they did by the time of, uh, by the, time of the first century church in the book of Acts. I pray the Lord to help us tonight.